Hello, New Time Religion podcast listeners. This is Derek. I hope you're doing well. Uh, before we start today's episode, I want to put in a quick plug for Andy's new online pop-up learning community called Religion and the Spiritual Crisis. Uh, Andy is doing this with Trip Fuller, who's the host of another great podcast, Homebrewed Christianity, and they would love to have all of our New Time Religion listeners join in on the fun. You can head over right now to tripfuller.com, that's T-R-I-P-P-F-U-L-L-E-R.com, and join their class. It's totally free. All of the content is available on demand, and so if you're just starting out, you can get all caught up and join in on the fun. So check it out today, Religion and the Spiritual Crisis with Andy Root and Trip Fuller. And so without further ado, here's a brand new episode of New Time Religion. At night, my mind drifted back to college. So many friends had become successful. Craig Fisher worked for the White House. Jason Hatfield had his own hedge fund. Billy Wurstler sold his tech company at 40. What do I have? I work for a nonprofit. I have nothing to show for it. Somebody asked about you. You know, whatever happened to you. Where's Brad? I remember that guy, Brad. Be happy. Love Be you. present. All right. I love you. These are competitive schools, Troy. Just try not to put too much pressure on yourself. My counselor thinks that I'll get into pretty much everywhere I apply. Kids going to Harvard. They'll jinx me, dude. My son is a very talented musician. Also composes his own music, so. Wonderful. I'm pretty sure Harvard is uh, gonna be in the running. Oh, you think Harvard's got a chance? Suddenly my thoughts darkened. Troy could easily end up struggling like me. This is Harvard. Even geniuses get rejected. We need to do everything we can. Dan, I'm about to go at my interview. Do you really need to be jumping all over me right now? You're nuts. Do I sound jaded? I started out as idealistic as any of your friends over there. You're 50 years old and you still think that the world was made for you. <laughs> I'm 47. Sometimes I worry that people think of me as a failure. Oh, that's right, you have your little thing. Oh, that is a cool thing that you do. That is good stuff. Your friends sound like dicks. Everybody's just thinking about themselves. The only person that's thinking about you is me. Isn't it crazy how we made this kid and now he's this brilliant, amazing person? I'm proud of you. Dad, you having some kind of nervous breakdown or something? So welcome to another round of AMC, Andy's Movie Club. Uh, we're really excited today. We are talking about Brad's status. Brad's status, I want to say, was on Amazon Prime Video. I think I got it for free streaming. Yep. Uh, it's got Ben Stiller. It's got Jenna Fisher, who was Pam on The Office. Got some other folks in it. Great movie. Uh, what we would say is if you haven't seen it yet, don't listen to this podcast yet. Go watch the movie, come back, and then listen to the podcast. So, Brad Status, Andy, what did you think? Well, first of all, I'd say there's not a, like a really spoiler alert. You know what I mean? You may you may even enjoy the movie more after you know listening to this podcast and then going back. But um, I love this movie. Um, it's I've shown it to my students in my class, and basically anyone under thirty five hates Brad 
with a living passion um, because he is this like very sullen guy. So it's, it's really a story of midlife, I think, but anyone over 35 loves this movie and thinks that it, it just speaks something really true. So it, it starts like probably a, those of us who are in midlife or near midlife, it, it starts in, in bed, like him tossing and turning and not being able to sleep. And essentially a young guy, his only employee he has at his company um, tells him he's quitting. And tells him that the, like the, the work just isn't fulfilling, and it just sends him on this this really I, I guess kind of existential um, crisis. And it's it's a beautiful movie because it's almost like a novel because you're hearing inside of his his consciousness. But he becomes very aware of what his his cohort, what his friends from college are doing, and it's probably because his own son is preparing to go to college next year and is starting to visit schools to apply. And um, he sees a a magazine at a dinner party, and there's a college roommate or something on it who's you know just become like you know it's like architectural design or something, and it's got this great house. And he starts to feel like he just hasn't done anything. He just and he doesn't have enough. And he said it's just it to me it's such a, a, a such a beautiful like um, picture into, uh, Hartmont Rosa's work. And actually, if any of you out there invite me to come to your church or your denominational conference, I'll probably show you a clip from this movie as we talk about what resonance is, but he has these lines as he, as he gets into this. So a lot of the movie is like these fantasies of him back in his mind and then him coming out of it and being kind of in a, in a daze and not really with his kid, like not really there at all. And, um, and inside of his own mind, though, he's like thinking about what he starts to construct all these stories for himself and what his other friends from college are doing, which I also think is just a fascinating thing about what it means to be a human, that we're always telling ourselves stories and living in inside of out, living in and outside of stories that often are not true and do more harm to us than good to us. But we're living out of these stories. But he has these lines. He says a couple times, like, when did I when did I start hating the world? I used to love the world and now I, you know, hate the world. When did I, when did the, the world and I fall out of love, which is so, you know, such an, an, an incredible example of Rose's work, because this is what he thinks happens with acceleration. This kind of accelerating move moves us to actually feel alienated, not just from our social surrounding or even our psychological capacities that we actually feel alienated from the world. We feel like we're not in it. And his character the whole time is kind of just on top of the world, not really having these experiences, not really connecting with anyone that that matters because he's really functioning a la um, Eric Fromm out of this kind of having mode. How can I have more? How can I have more? How can I have more? And, uh, you know, like it, it, it's just it's fairly remarkable. So pretty much the whole movie are these different internal narratives of him trying to kind of construct this. And he's quite a miserable person who just is is trying to work out what is a good life and feels completely disconnected from the good. But yet the only way he thinks he can solve his disconnection from the good is to have more um, and, you know, try to have more. The other thing that was really interesting was just how much he put the eggs of his entire life in the basket of status. And I guess that's the name of the movie is Brad's status. But his whole sense of being was in competition with these three friends from college. That that was his whole method of, of living in the world was comparing himself to these other three friends. 
and it really even wasn't a concrete encounter with them. It was an imagination of what they were doing. Like this, this is what's a really interesting thing. I mean, it's called Brad's status in another, you know, that that's obviously him thinking about his status, but it also is how much the cell phone comes into play here. And so he gets these snapshots of these friends' lives and then he constructs internally a whole narrative about them that isn't even true, but that makes him feel like an absolute failure, which I think is one of the very fascinating things about this film and why any kind of pastor or ministry leader should watch it is, um, you know, he feel it is a movie. It's, it's a movie about a late modern kind of conception of what it means to be living a failed life. And he really feels like he's a failure, that he has failed. Here he is almost 50 years old or maybe 50 years old and he's, he's failed. And what he's failed to do and why he asks when, when his wife's parents are going to die is because he'd feel less like a failure if he just found out they were going to inherit, you know, a couple million dollars or at least enough to pay off the house or something. So the only thing that will kind of appease the utter acute bellyache of failure is to have to, to put something on the ledger of having. You know, have more money to, uh, to to have some more more status out out in the world, um, to be invited to things. Like he he goes through a kind of existential crisis as he's forced to reach out to some of these friends when he finds out that one of them got married and didn't invite him, and he just assumes that's because he's a failure and they don't want a failure around. And whether he even has this you know powerful line where he says whether it was intentional or not, it doesn't really matter. I I hadn't made the grade to be successful enough to to be there um i just think that's fascinating i think it's fascinating to think about in the context of ministry how people sitting in the pews listening to our sermons are actually telling themselves deep stories about things um well the other thing too is like his friend pokes holes in all of his preconceived stories that he has about his friends so the one friend that was super successful he's basically cheated on his taxes and the feds are out to get him and you also learn that he has some health issues with his daughter which is just really sad so he's not living this amazing life the other guy who's like retired in hawaii he finds out he's actually super addicted to alcohol and drugs and his life is just in shambles too and then he finds out this other guy like his students hate him they think he's a total jerk so basically all those like notions that he had that his friends were living these great lives are just obliterated and that's kind of what gets him to wake up too at least that's how i took it he actually gets he gets a deeper story and that sends him back to his his son and he goes into that concert and this is exactly kind of Rose's point about all of a sudden finding yourself in a world that speaks to you again, where he goes and he listens to that music at that concert. And, um, you know, it's like an orchestra concert and he just becomes overwhelmed with that moment. And he starts crying and he like grabs his son's hand and his son's a little nervous. Like, are you having a, are you having a nervous breakdown here, dad? Um, and then we get that internal dialogue again, where he says, um, and he's talking about those girls that he had had that beer with and now they're there on stage and he does this incredibly beautiful thing, which is the switch into the being mode where he says, I could love the music. I could even love those girls and never possess them, never have them just be with them and be in this experience of this kind of word and response of the world being living. And he does say like, I still do love the world. I still do love being alive. A sudden rush of feeling flooded through me. I spent so much time in my mind puffing myself up, tearing myself down. I sat there and just listened, 
and let myself really feel the life inside me. The music was beautiful. The girls were beautiful. I could love them and never possess them. Just like I could love the world and never possess it. And it is this kind of moment of resonance where all of a sudden the music speaks to him. All of a sudden, the fact that his son is next to him um, just infuses him with life. And I just wonder if that, you know, I just, you know, this seems like a, maybe a too direct of a line, but I, it just feels like that's what we're trying to be about in the context of congregational life is give people experiences of of being more than of having and of breaking those narratives with a deeper story that allows them to hear again the world speak, but even more than the world speak, God God speak to them um, and, and call them into something. But to get there, then the next scene to me is the most powerful and does really connect with Rose's resonance that they end up back in that hotel room and, and Troy, his son, goes, Dad, are you having a nervous breakdown? Because that's what you'd expect when your dad starts crying in, you know, in this concert and holding your hand. And he says, no, no, but we, none of, the, the viewer and his son doesn't quite believe that that's true. But then he moves into this incredible moment of confession, and it really is confession, where he says, basically, he just says, I, I've, you know, I've been thinking a lot about my college friends, and I just feel like I'm a failure. I just feel like I haven't, I don't have enough. Like I haven't done enough. Um, I feel like a failure. And Troy, who's, you know, wiser than his age, talks about how they got in a fight, you know, um, earlier and his dad was embarrassing him. And he was like, dad, shut up, shut up, shut up. Right before his tour of Harvard, like dad, people are watching you shut up. He says, you know, dad, I thought about the way you embarrassed me yesterday. And I thought, man, if I go to the school, I'm not gonna be able to live this down. Like everyone's going to remember this moment. He says, then I realized, no, they're not. Because no one's really thinking about me. They're also worried with their own stuff that they're not really, they're not going to remember this. They're not really thinking about me. And he says, you know, Dad, um, the only one who's really thinking about you is me. So maybe you should worry about what I think of you, which is a powerful statement. And then, and then you know, being the dad, being kind of put in your place by your 17-year-old son, he's like, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> how should, what do you think of me? And then it's just this beautiful line where he says, well, I love you, which is completely in the logic of being, not of having. And when you experience the communion of being over and against having, the only response, like be, like finding yourself in Christ, being in Christ, the only response is not to now turn on the doing. It is to respond as the, the very form of discipleship with gratitude. And he does. He just says thank you. Thank you. And then the movie ends the same way it started with him tossing and turning in bed and being haunted by these, these kind of internal narratives of him trying to make sense of his life. And he says, I just kept saying to myself, I'm alive. I'm alive. My son is in the world. My son is in the world. And then I pictured I pictured me with my son. I kept on thinking we have years together. And then there's them just kind of walking on the beach. They're not doing anything. They're just being together. And that's enough. Life is at its fullest in that mode of being. And I just do think we need to kind of recover a very practical theology, a very pastoral theology that, that moves into this being mode, that thinks of the church in this kind of 
being sense. Um, and it's just an amazing movie how much I think it just connects with the kind of corpus of, of Rose's work. And at least what I'm trying to elicit theologically and kind of ministerially from, from Rose's work of uh, the way alienation functions in the having mode and the necessity of the being mode and what that actually looks like bound in relationships concretely with others like his son, these moments of confession that infuse us with life, these experiences of of finding ourselves thrust into beauty or at least into a beckoning call that can't be possessed, but yet somehow deeply includes us. I mean, these are deep experiences that we have that um, I think become more the ground of what it means to do faithful ministry, you know? So I had a question that was jangling through my head while I was watching this movie, and it's this. Um, Brad had this really beautiful experience, transformative experience of resonance in this movie, and we saw just the arc of his character um, and the reframing of his conception of the good life and all that stuff. He does it without any church whatsoever. Like, there's just no mention of religion, spirituality, any of that stuff. So the question I had while I was watching this movie is if all of that is possible without the church, what's what's our role in all of this? Are, are we an organization or a body or a community that is helping people on this journey to wake up and find resonance, or is our purpose deeper than that? Where do we fit into this puzzle if somebody like Brad can do all this without church? Brad clearly does this all without, at least as as, as we see it, like, organized forms of religion and a community um, that's confessing Jesus Christ. But he's not doing it outside, I think, the direct the direct movement of the Spirit in some sense or of, of Jesus' own kind of move to even reveal himself and to transform him, which does come in this, this, this call to be with his son and does come with this move of confession. So I think what we're taught within the church is that First of all, how we help people wrestle with their stories, the stories they tell themselves are really important. How we give them other stories to live out of and live out of um, live out of in a way that infuses them with life is really is essential. But the only way you can do that is through confession. So the church is present in in the movie. Um, it's present in the bedroom where he moves into it moves into confession. And so um, the church's job is never to kind of manage the kingdom of God. So it's not to say, well, that doesn't count because that didn't happen inside of church walls. But it is our job to say, behold, there it is. And that points to a deeper form of reality, which is when we gather and confess the ways we're so tempted in to the having mode and to feel like failures and find ourselves isolated from the world because we keep living out of these stories that that just that that just undercut us and corrode us um and that we need a different story to live out of um yeah the church needs to continue to be a companion that tries to faithfully live out of the being mode through confession and through continued reflection on our own life narratives inside of this narrative of jesus christ so it is really what the church does in humility and in just encounters with with beauty, but always 
in awareness of the others we're living with um, invites people into the transfusion of stories to to take, you know, like a blood transfusion, this transfusion of these different stories to live out of. And uh, but to get there, you have to move into confession. I mean, there is a dialectic at the heart of this where you have to you have to make a, a, a confession. New Time Religion featuring Dr. Andy Root is produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. Andy's brand new book, The Congregation in a Secular Age, is out now, and you can get it wherever fine books are sold or by just going to Amazon. New Time Religion is produced by the Alter Guild Podcasting Network, and you can check them out for more great shows. Thanks again so much for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another round of New Time Religion.